Hi, I'm Michael O'Connell, host of the It's All Journalism podcast. For more than a decade, It's All Journalism has produced a weekly podcast featuring interviews with working journalists, educators, and media thought leaders, all discussing the ever-changing media landscape. We've covered a wide range of topics such as solutions journalism, mental health in the newsroom, local news startups, investigative reporting, online harassment, and new technology. Over the years, It's All Journalism partnerships have played important roles in expanding our reach and ensuring that we are able to continue producing our weekly podcast series. We are currently seeking new partners to help us keep this podcast going. If you believe in It's All Journalism's mission, if you want to see these conversations continue, go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the partnerships link and find out how we can share your company or organization's good work with a wider audience. Maybe we can produce a podcast series for you or host your next webinar. The It's All Journalism team is ready to spotlight your organization's good work and keep these important conversations going. Go to itsalljournalism.com, click on the partnerships link, and let's collaborate. And now, here's our latest episode. Low pay, uncertain work prospects, diminished prestige. Why would anyone still want to be a journalist? A new book that draws on in-depth interviews in France and the United States attempts to answer that question. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to the It's All Journalism podcast. Today I'm talking to the co-authors of The Journalism Predicament. Matthew Powers, an associate professor in the Department of Communications at the University of Washington in Seattle, he also co-directs the Center for Journalism, Media, and Democracy. Sandra Vera Zambrano, a member of the National Research System, and she also coordinates the PhD program in communication at La Revista Iberoamericana at La Universidad Iberoamericana in Mexico City. Matthew and Sandra, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, so this is really you know a worldwide interview here. I'm talking to Matt, who I guess you're in in Washington State, and Sandra, you're in South America. No, pardon me, you're in. I'm Mexico. in Mexico. I'm in Mexico. I used to be in France for many years. Now I'm in Mexico. Okay, cool. All right. Well, you know, as as I told you before, return on the mics. You know, when I saw the title of your book, I realized you had to come onto the podcast because it kind of speaks to a lot of the things that we've been discussing and a lot of people are concerned about. But before we get into that, let's find out a little bit about each of you. Matt, when did you get interested in journalism and, and what was the path that led you to the University of Washington? So before I ever got interested in journalism as being a journalist, which I did for a while, I was a consumer of news. I grew up in a house that you know subscribed to several newspapers. It was in a suburban New England town. And it was really a way in which the world came to us. And so it was a really exciting way of staying in touch with things that were going on, but also learning about all sorts of different worlds. And so I sort of got interested in journalism just by being a consumer at first. And then I was channeled in high school. You know, I had teachers who said, you know, you, you might be good for this. You're terrible at math, but you're pretty decent at writing. And so, you know, maybe you might think about this. So I went to college to study journalism. And while I was there, I 
fell in love with doing journalism, but I also fell in love with the academic study of journalism. I had a particular professor who was a historian of journalism. And so from very early on, I had this idea of it would be amazing both to work in journalism, but then also maybe at some point to earn towards the academic study of journalism. And so I ended up doing that. I worked for several years after graduating as a journalist in Vermont. And then, you know, through the twists and turns of life, went to graduate school, graduated from graduate school, and got a job about a decade ago at the University of Washington. Okay. And how about you, Sandra? When did you get interested in journalism and how'd you end up in your current role? Okay, well, I, I was not very interested in news when I was smaller, but I did meet people which I found very, very interesting. And they were like either journalists or trained in political science. And so I wanted to become like an, I don't know, like a political analyst in the media. So I did political science as a major in college, which I thought was like very intellectual and glamorous. At least that's what I really thought about. And then I went to France to follow my studies in political science, where I met a teacher who later on became my advisor for the PhD, who told me like, hey, you can like you can work in journalists, you know, like that can be something that could be interesting for you as you are very close between political science and political communication and journalism, because I did some radio for college, like me speaking, but with, without any training. But I liked it very much. And so he told me, like, you could probably jump into that. And then 15 years after, I hold a position in a Mexican university. That was in France. Now I hold a position in a university in Mexico working on journalism studies. And I really like it. Cool. Journalist predicament. What is the journalist predicament? Aside from the title of your book, either, you know, Sandra, what's your take? I would think the predicament as a self-conviction every day that what journalists do is really worth what they are doing. So like waking up in the morning and thinking, well, I get low pay. I don't get very good conditions. People don't really like me or not everyone. Like I really do many things for them and I don't get enough recognition, but it's worth it. Like really, I like, I love what I do. I have this passion. It's wired in my soul and I just keep going. But I think of it as a predicament because it's very contradictory to know all these difficulties that entail doing journalism and then just like do it. Matt, do you have anything to add to that? I think Sandra said it really well. I would think about it in terms of it's the struggle that every journalist faces every single day to convince themselves that the career that they're in is worth their while, despite all of the reasons that exist to get out of it or to not get into it in the first place. The low pay, the low public approval, the uncertain work prospects. And so everyone faces this problem, but they don't face it in the same way and with the same set of circumstances. And so, you know, if you graduate from Columbia Journalism School and then you're, you know, going into the workforce, and you've already got an internship or two under your belt. That's a very different experience, but you still are facing, you know, this issue of convincing yourself that it's worthwhile. Yeah, I think I've spoken to very few journalists who are like, you know, everything's perfect in their lives. You know, either they're too busy, they're too stressed, they're overwhelmed, they're not making them enough, enough money, they're spending too much time on the job. As you said, you know, we're not alone in that, but we also have this career that we sort of dedicated our, ourselves to. At some point, you, you ask yourself, well, what's the return on this? 
I'm putting all this effort into it. Is it worth it? And a lot of people say yes. A lot of people say no. So what inspired uh, you to write the book, both of you to write the book? Matt, do you have a thought? So I think in one sense, we were motivated to write it because we've been writing together for about a decade in sort of traditional academic journal articles. And those are good for discrete questions that contribute to a scholarly literature, but they're not quite as good as like getting at a sort of foundational but taken for granted question. And as we kept going through the data and kept interviewing people and speaking with people, I think it emerged almost sort of organically for us where we said, why would anybody actually follow this career path? And, you know, like that seems like a really basic question, but one that's often taken for granted in discussions about the future of journalism, that there's a lot that gets discussed about funding models. There's a lot that gets discussed about platforms and technologies. There's a lot that gets discussed about fake news and misinformation, but all of that rests on the fact that you have thousands of people who wake up every day and think it's worth my while to be a journalist. And what we wanted to do is to try and understand what allows that to happen for all those people in their very diverse contexts. So how did you go about, like you refer to data and interviews, you know, tell me about the, the research for this, the, the data that you're able to acquire that sort of informs your, your writing. We did interviews in depth. We did many, many interviews. We met many journalists. We had informal discussions. We went to their meetings and we followed them for like a period of time for the book because we had like all these information and all these publications that we've had throughout the time. And then we got into a point where we really want, wanted to wrap up like a capstone. We really wanted to like wrap all those pieces that we've been gathering for years. And so we met journalists again to know what they were like up to. If journalism was still wired in their souls or was it something that just was not worth anymore? And so we did mostly interviews, but we had also other data from like informal discussions or from things that we knew that were going on from observation. And then at the very beginning, we were very, very rigorous at gathering data from like distribution or some of the media guides and the law like all the all those law things that had to do with the markets or the, because they were very important in France and that marked a huge difference with the American case okay now you say you went back to journalists did you discover that many of the people that you had you know talked to previously were either not working in journalism or that their lives had changed in some way that journalism was a, a different element in their lives, either absent or they were doing a different type of work. So we can say that in the American case, when we went back, we uh, looked systematically and we found that about 40% of people had left the industry entirely. That was in a seven year period. And most of those people were people who had not made it through a decade of career experience. You know, so that's a pretty high rate of attrition. And you say not making it a, a decade. Did those numbers sort of skew younger people who are leaving journalism or younger? Yes. So within the American case, I can't speak systematically to the French one, but in the American case, yes, they do tend to be younger. So when you're talking to these people, what is it they're telling you? What are the forces that are, are making them decide Obviously, some people have real no decision in it if their outlet closes or they're laid off. I can speak for the French case a little bit because that's where we found and then but the uses 
as well in the American case, is what we called, using someone else's concept, the triggering event. For people, and I'm, I'm saying the French case because they were not laid off. Like laying off in France is very, very, very rare. So it's mostly people who finally find themselves thinking that what they do is not worth any while. Like for the same money, they could do something easier or do something as difficult with lots more of money. And what we found, and I'm thinking particularly of two different cases because they were gendered, one male, one female. And the male was like, this is not what I'm earning. It's not really what I do for. Like I work 12 hours, 14 hours a day. I have to move from my hometown just like to get a decent pay. And this is like killing me, literally killing me. I have two cell phones. I read news all the time. Like he was like this close to burnout. And we have other cases with burnout. And then for, for ladies, it was like, now I'm old. I'm older. My children are older. I can go back and do what I like. Paradoxically, at that we didn't find in the U.S. I work in, in journalism that's steady enough so that I can raise my children. Like a very mediocre, average journalistic job. But now like they're raised. I can live with them without like having these imperative to finish at five. I'll do what I like doing. And so they just like, moved from journalism. What's the American you know, story? Actually, in a lot of ways, there's a, a fair number of similarities. And that was really surprising to us. And it was surprising to us because even though layoffs happen in the US, in the news industry, the vast majority of people that we spoke to were not laid off, but left, quote unquote, voluntarily. And when I say, quote unquote, voluntarily, it was because they faced really difficult decisions. You know, sometimes it was people dealing with burnout, you know, saying like, I can't do this anymore. Other times it was just making like very, you know, basic decisions and distinctions between like, how much should I prioritize the satisfaction and the meaning that I get from my work versus the economic security that I need in order to live the life I want to live and also to be able to have a retirement, you know, to what extent this was a big gender variable in the US, you know, for women in their 30s, where a range of people said, you know, being a journalist in my 20s was great. I felt like it was really exciting. But then once I got to my 30s and I started to either have kids or want to have kids, you know, this was not the type of job that was amenable to it. And so it led to these choices between like, do I choose having a family or do I choose having a profession? And then for other people, it's, you know, questions like, you know, am I willing to move away from the place in which I want to live? There were a range of people, for instance, who said, you know, I knew I could find a job if I was willing to leave Seattle, but I didn't want to leave Seattle. And so therefore I gave up my career in order to be able to stay in the place that I want to be in. So did you get a sense that were they leaving journalism completely or did they, you know, say transition into something that's quasi media or I don't want to dismiss public relations, but it's a different type of media. I guess that's the way I should say it. Moving into something like public relations. Did you see any of that? There's such a diversity. It's truly extraordinary. We spoke with everyone from, you know, a former journalist who became a medical salesperson to a chef to people who went on to do documentaries, podcasts, things that maybe they were doing it for advocacy organizations and they didn't see themselves as being journalists anymore, but were doing things that were very, what they would call journalism adjacent. And so we saw really like an enormous mix. And I think that there's kind of a happy tale out of that, which is that for the vast majority of people, 
they never actually doubt the value of journalism, even once they leave. They don't say like, you know, I don't really believe that journalism is useful for society anymore. I think it's kind of dumb because nobody actually reads it and you can't change anybody's mind anyway. Instead, what they say, because I think that could be a possibility, but at least empirically doesn't seem to be happening. And instead, what seems to be happening is people doubt their relationship to the profession. They say, I still really believe in the profession. It just doesn't make sense in the context of my life. And I think that there's something very tragic about that, which is that it's very difficult to pursue a career and a stable career in a job that is really, really socially important. But I think the happy version of that is that we're not facing something, a job that's on the brink of extinction in the same way in which we would if people really just didn't see it as being socially useful at all. Or if it were something like a manufacturing job where something else had replaced it and we can't make enough money, so we're going to have to close this business, this type of you know, manufactured product is just not going to be made anymore because there's not enough demand for it. So there's still a demand. You know, because we're journalists, yeah, here we go. We, we, we start this out talking about how all the journalists I know complain about things. And we immediately get into the discussion about 40%, which is a big number. It, certainly you want to find out what that's about. But actually the majority of people responded 60% are still in journalism. What are they saying that's different than maybe the people who left? Sandra, do you have a thought on that? There's a happy story there and there's like a more pessimistic one. Name it as managing disappointment. There are people who can manage disappointment very well. I finish at five, or this is what I like. This is not exactly what I dreamt of, but it's acceptable. I do what I have to do. And then from time to time, I get to do things that I really like. And that gets the roll, the, the ball rolling. Or people who just like don't have to manage disappointment anymore because that's the way life is. And then they get the justification for doing journalism for other reasons. And I think very precisely of this case, which was not very rare, as someone who was coming from like a very poor family. And then I asked him like, do you earn like less than your father who is in construction and your mother who like takes care of children? And like your wife works in a bakery store and you earn less than they do. Like, why do you keep doing this? Like, I was like really surprised. And he was like, I, I'm the only one in my family who's gone to college, who sits on a chair for work and who ends the day clean. And that I would change for like, nothing will change that. So there are people saying that despite the difficulties, they have job satisfaction. Exactly. Do you think that's a personality thing? Is it an age thing that, you know, somebody who's has a little more life experience, they're making that decision or that they're drawing that distinction, especially when, when we talk about the majority of the people in the, who left were, were on the younger end of the employment scale. That's the academic and mostly sociological part that we have also. To my sense, it's very social. Of course, it's individual. And of course, anyone can make decisions. And of course, paths are different. And of course, like, of course, there are many things playing around. But we definitely found that origins and families and education and primary socialization was very, very important. Hmm, that's interesting. Matt, you know, as a professor, what are you telling your students? This is really difficult, actually, because I think we have a responsibility to be honest with students while also sharing our own passions and the very real and exciting opportunities. 
I think the challenge is certainly the challenge that I face is to simultaneously not sugarcoat what is truly a difficult reality and to have students be aware of the fact that the job market is difficult and maybe not difficult in the sense of getting in initially, but that the pay is really low, that the hours are very long, that the demands are very high, that you don't often get to do the things, at least initially, that you got into it to do. And yet that there are real world cases of people who go to the University of Washington, who study journalism, who go on and become journalists and are actually successful cases. So we try to show them that it's difficult, but that there are people who do succeed and to try and get the students to learn from those who do without forgetting the, the broader picture. What do you think about that, Sandra? I'm slightly more optimistic from time to time. And so I, I really believe that it's difficult. Of course, it's difficult. But that if they really, like market is hard anyway, anywhere. It's not that they work elsewhere that they have it like for sure, for granted. Unless going to finance or, or other kind of places where money is kind of self-insured. But if they went to journalism, it's because they had this double mission. One is making a life, but also serving communities or having this symbolic like role in society, like to really be part of something. And we found fewer cases that we thought of like sustaining democracy. Like we really didn't find those many cases, but like they have this social mission. And so once they have a social mission, it's not for money only. If they acknowledge and they know that they are not doing this for money, but they really know what that, that entails, then disappointing management is less difficult, I think. Yeah. And there are a lot of other, you know, factors that are going on now and that are not necessarily all economic. You know, some of them are social, some of them are matters of thing, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, issues like that. Were there many people who sort of have talked about that? Our industry has been slow in many places in becoming inclusive for different types of people. Did you get any data from that or about that? One of the things that was interesting is that 10 years ago when we first started doing our research, this was something that almost never came up. You know, it was just not really discussed. You know, occasionally you would have someone say, you know, this tends to be a white profession, tends to be more male than female, particularly as you move up the management ranks, et cetera. And that's something that over time, we both saw more diversity in newsrooms and also saw a lot more discussion of it. To give you a sense, like early on in both the French and the American cases, there was such little diversity that we couldn't actually make any meaningful analytical arguments about the relationship between race and career prospects because there were so few individuals who were not, you know, French, you know, white French or white American. And so that became very difficult. In terms of changes over time, one of the things that we did find because we did study markets that were not, you know, the national media capitals is that in part because of the longstanding and historical exclusions that have operated in the media industry is that metropolitan newspapers in particular report having a difficult time holding on to some of the talent that they initially are able to acquire. And that's be for a very good reason, which is that a lot of these young reporters from diverse backgrounds are extremely talented and very hardworking and they will then get picked up by national outlets. And so there seems to be a sort of problem, not in the negative sense, but a problem for 
metropolitan news organizations in the American case in particular in holding on to those people. Did you see a difference in the type of newsrooms that you were dealing with 10 years ago as opposed to now? Were there more people who were in startups who were more like digitally focused as opposed to maybe large metropolitan newspaper focused? Yeah, I think I'll say this for France because it's not, it has not changed as, as much as for the American case. But I think what happened in the South, at least the South of France, was that people from more diverse horizons just like go to Paris. That's where they will get a nice job with a nice salary. They have to make the choice of leaving where they were born and raised and then move to Paris, but most of them will just move to Paris. And that's where everything happens, like startups or other possibilities than traditional media, it will be on Paris mainly. So like in the outside of Paris and particularly in the South, it's still very press oriented with this very enormous group that has its own newspapers, but no radio stations, no television broadcasts. It's very, very traditional and all the rest happens in Paris. Interesting. Even when we have the technology now, people could live anywhere in France and do their job. But well, traditions like that are, are, are difficult to break. Matt, how about you? What was sort of the, the makeup of the American newsrooms that you were talking to journalists from? So there, I think that there is a difference. I think that there's been a lot of experimentation. The, the proportion of online-only news sites, either commercial, for-profit, or non-for-profit ventures, has grown substantially. And you can see it in basic ways. So for instance, I don't know if you saw, there was a Pew report, I think maybe six months ago, that showed that basically all the growth in state house reporting across the country is coming from digital startups. And I think that's increasingly the case. I don't think we've gotten to the point yet where in any major metropolitan area, they've displaced in terms of employment numbers, the overall employment provided by traditional newspapers, radio, television, et cetera. But it's more than just a drop in the bucket, which was the thing people said five, 10 years ago. Maybe this is the same report, but recently I heard something, I saw a report where they, and actually you may have interviewed somebody on the podcast about it, that there was a high level of satisfaction for journalists, which seems at odds with kind of what you found, or maybe not. I guess if I step back and I go back to that, the 40% versus 60%. So that would mean of that 60%, are those people satisfied with what they're doing? If I remember that report, I think it's even more interesting, which is that they wouldn't recommend anybody else go into journalism, <laughs> but they have no regrets for themselves. They would do it all over again. I think that's the 60% that like, they know it's difficult. They know that the future is not one that's entirely bright. A lot of them, you know, probably would not be so pleased if their children came to them and said, Hey, I'm thinking about majoring in journalism in college. And yet they themselves find it to be a meaningful way to spend a life. So did you ask about the future of journalism? Did people sort of tell you what they thought or where things were going? At the end of every interview, we asked people, you know, what they would like if they could be given anything. And they said, uh, give us the resources to be able to do the sort of work that we can take pride in. 
And for a long time, that actually kind of puzzled us as a response because we we're like, why wouldn't they just ask for like better salaries or like something like really basic, <laughs> right? And so that's definitely part of it, and it's a sign of just how bad things are that they wouldn't even bother to sort of say that. But I think it's also a sign of the way in which journalists are sort of perpetual optimists and always thinking better of themselves and thinking that if they actually had better conditions, that they could do much better work. Now, that's a sort of general thing that cuts across all of these things. One of the things we did find specifically is that there are a whole host of like exciting developments that are occurring. People are finding, you know, springboards for innovation in all of these difficult conditions, you know, that there are people who see them as opportunities to learn new skills, to be able to develop new ways of telling stories, to be able to identify new communities on which to report. And all of those things are real and, and they're very much happening. I feel like we could pull on many threads in this book and just talk for hours about it. But check out Matt and Sandra's book, The Journalist Predicament, Difficult Choices in a Declining Profession. Matt and Sandra, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who report the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. To make sure you don't miss an episode of It's All Journalism, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco is our audio producer. Amber Healy writes our web content. Amelia Brust is our booking manager. Steph Thomas manages our social media. Nick Dupre composed our theme music. Carolyn Belefsky designed our logo. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>